Hey everyone, first off, Weird With Me is Strange, want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. And this week, also from Tomaki Makoto, Auckland, meeting and speaking on the Fenua of Ngāti Whātua, Oraki. Let's go! Welcome to Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you still from our bedrooms. I'm your Familiar Stranger today, Simon Theobald, together with my fellow Familiar Strangers, Alexander Deloyer. Hello. Claire Jane. Hello. And our newest Familiar Stranger, Joe Clifford. Hello. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. So Joe, you're new to the Familiar Strange. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're thinking about this week? Sure. So I've recently submitted a master's thesis at the University of Auckland and I will be working towards a PhD at the Australian National University. My research topics are on Indonesia, primarily Java, and this week I've been thinking about the way that states use sort of the hallmark concepts of anthropology, such as kinship and reciprocity, towards projects of government. So we might get you to unpack that a little bit. One of the things that my research touched on was looking at how a mutual aid project in Indonesia was used by the state in order to extract free labour and to sort of frame the state as this unitary singular form. And in that research, I came across a number of other states across the world that had similar practices from America, also throughout Africa. Um, one example of that in the Andes that I'm sure Alex is familiar would be the uh, Minka. Yeah, no, you're quite right. So in Ecuador, oh, look, through the Andes, there's practice known as Minga or Minka, depending on your brand of Quechua or Quechua. In short, it's basically a form of collective labour practice. In many ways, it's similar to maybe a school cleanup or clean. That is grossly oversimplifying it, but it's the sort of good explanation for a lay audience. Now, what has been happening a lot in the Andes, and I gather this is similar to what you've seen in Indonesia, is that often the state sets up programs calling it Minga or Minka, in order to kind of get people to do stuff. So if there's an irrigation ditch that, sure enough, needs to be cleared and cleaned out, they go, well, come on, let's have a minga to do this, instead of just paying a bunch of people to do that. Yeah, so that's exactly right in Indonesia as well. So the Indonesian term is royal, and similar digging irrigation canals for rice paddies, the maintenance of roads, erecting mosques, pool halls, all of these things can be either initiated by a member of the community or by a state official. And obviously the state officials at the local level are kind of wearing both hats at once as members of the local community, part of the state. What I found interesting is how recently the Indonesian government has worked very hard to brand themselves as enacting the ideals of a mutual aid program. So one of the Indonesia's currently running a dual vaccine program called Vaccinasi Gotong Royong, which is um, allowing private companies to actually vaccinate their workforces prior to everyone else on the queue and sort of doing this quicker as being branded by the state as a form of like collective mutual aid. How do they pass that off as mutual aid? So part of it's superficial branding. Also part of it is holding this idea up that 
we're doing this for the collective good and the collective good is the staying of the economy, getting key members of the workforce work sooner rather than necessarily focusing on those who are most at risk from the virus. Is there a sense of mutuality in it? I'm not sure that they, the policy itself has too much mutuality, but they're quite keen to sort of present it as if it was a type of mutuality and as if it was part of a wider system of reciprocity that people could buy into. But I guess that's sort of my question. Like in the branding, in the marketing of this program, who are they saying is being reciprocal to who? Uh, so I think it would be the state and these large organizations sort of to one another, but also to society. So if you can imagine... I suppose, a triangle between state, state-owned enterprises who are also eligible for the scheme, and then large private sector. They're all sort of trying to present themselves as working together towards virus mitigation. I don't know, it sounds like an encouragement for the wealthy class to help themselves in, instead of mutual help across all class barriers. Uh, I think that's right. I think it's interesting that they try and hold it up as a sort of enactment of moral economy and sort of as part of a wider system. So there is also a state-run vaccination program, but that hasn't had the same sort of branding, which is quite interesting. So in that sort of going down the usual uh, lines of what makes sense from, a immune, from an epidemiological point of view, rather than trying to frame it as being part of um, a moral economy or form of recipe. Look, so what I find interesting about this, and that it sounds like it's similar to happening, at least in the Andes and Indonesia, is the way these practices seem to accrue more actors, but in doing so get, I would argue, potentially weaker. So the history of it in the Andes is that it was an indigenous practice, kind of also tied up in colonialism. The history is really complicated. But it certainly didn't include the state until it started to include the state. And once it started to include the state, it kind of started to include the private sector. So one program that was run while I was there was... But there was a minga about... um, planting trees organized by the municipal government in a local area but it was this sort of alliance sort of proposed by the municipal government i think they started it they managed to get nestle on board who provided something like 500 trees and then they got the community to plant them and in this sense even though this is quite different to how mingo originally worked in colonial times it's this kind of all sort of everyone does their bit the municipality kind of coordinated. Nestle provided a lot of financial material support and the community did the labour. But that is kind of... There are, there are lots of Indigenous communities that practice Minga in a much more traditional way, but that is certainly a more modern model that seems to be trotted out a lot. And it's not only the inclusion of the state, but it also kind of gets the private private corporations involved as actors in their own right. So from my knowledge, the histories between um, Latin America and Indonesia don't quite line up there. I hadn't come across many examples of the private sector invoking this concept of specific concept of Royal until um, within the last year when the two biggest startups in Indonesia, Tokopedia and Gojek, uh, merged together and they explicitly referred to this merger as being an enactment of this mutual aid project, Gotong Royal. I, I just don't, I don't understand how it, it differs from like other aid projects. I suppose usually what would happen that makes it different from an, a typical aid project would usually involve or the introduction of like paid members of staff. This is a going into a community saying we want you, we're sort of calling on you to do this mutual aid project or to enact some sort of public work in the name of the state and you're expected to sort of give your labour. I would say, uh, I certainly can tell you in the Latin American context, 
the critique that's now being made of the state doing this has been made of NGOs doing this for a couple of decades already. Mm. So you are quite right, though. Well, at least in the Latin American context, yeah, this is very similar to a lot of development work. It actually does, and this is another critique of it, because when turned into these sorts of forms, it often really does reflect kind of a neoliberal governmentality because it is people self-help and all that sort of stuff it resonates well with these styles of government of being like well the government should just sit back and people should help themselves which to be fair i think is less than a coincidence because and this is only my own hypothesis i don't have the historical knowledge to fully be able to say this with authority but i feel it's probably related to at least in the andean case a lot of these practices started at a time when people couldn't expect help from the state where it was either the colonial or newly independent state that really wasn't going to help indigenous communities much. So if they weren't going to help themselves, who would? Claire, what do you, like, surely you must have seen some, like, reciprocity, even if it's between corporations. Like, we don't need to stay in the state versus people sort of thing. Because I kept thinking about Joe's point on the Indonesian's program of assigning the responsibility of vaccination to private corporations. And I was like, it's supposed to be a public good but under the this disguise of mutual aid it's now an turned into like an economic product to be distributed by the private sector and it just doesn't sit right with me in, in indonesia the interesting thing is they have both they have the private sector doing kind yeah. of like their workers and they have the state doing kind of everyone else to go back to what claire's saying because i think you've got something interesting there claire is that it begs the question of who, again, that question of where's this reciprocity? Because reciprocity is normally, you're reciprocal between kind of a, normally two, but sometimes a few more partners, right? Yeah. So like you said, I would certainly think of vaccination and access to vaccinations as a public good, so to everyone. But suddenly if you make it a reciprocal thing, like we all have obligations around it, then even if it can be between, how can I put this? public in the sense of you're not just buying the vaccine it's still between fixed actors like fixed people and that's interesting what do you mean by that take the australian rollout of the vaccine which is going terribly but amidst other things everyone in australia will be entitled to it Mm. right and there is that equivalent scheme in indonesia i gather yes but you have this other reciprocity scheme and in this instance, I gather, like, the state is helping the private corporations, but the private corporations give the vaccine to the workers, and I gather the workers work, and that's them giving back. That's the reciprocal relationship. And that's really between kind of two parties, right? The corporation and the worker. That is not, is what I understood Claire saying, that's not immunisation as a public good. Mm. It's public in the sense of the worker isn't buying it, yeah. But it's not public in the sense of everyone's getting it. Yes. And I suppose the way in which some people might frame it as a public good is that these are often workers who are linked in high growth sectors. And the idea is without these workers adding that growth to the economy, their sort of economic hurt that's already very real is likely to get worse. That probably the you know, that's one presentation of that argument. I think you can probably dissect that and pull that apart in lots of different ways in it asks all sorts of probably quite uncomfortable questions about does one's economic output entitle entitle you to greater or better help easier access to something like a vaccine or 
should that be calculated on the basis of how likely you are to be hospitalized or um, potentially die from infection? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people write about various practices of reciprocity as always really positive, wonderful things. And like, I'm not going to say they're bad, but they can lead to their own exclusions Mm. because people who can't reciprocate are often excluded from it. So that creates its own set of inequalities or it can create its own set of inequalities. I think circling back to what you were saying about the actors as well, Alex, is um, very interesting comparing to the Australia example where there's this assumption that it will necessarily be the state who enforces and enacts the vaccine rollout. And I think part of the anger that I'm seeing on social media at the moment towards um, Scott Morrison is that he isn't fulfilling his sort of obligations uh, in the way that he's obliged as the leader of Australia, both in one, being present in the country during outbreak, and two, in that, you know, he is in charge of the actor who Australians expect to provide the vaccine and is um, consistently failing. It's the point where you have a former prime minister calling up Pfizer. <laughs> Which, of course, brings its own questions of reciprocity, because if you're like, hey, you help us out here, we'll do something for you down there. We could keep talking about this forever, but perhaps we should move on. Claire, what are you thinking about this week? I've been thinking about the upcoming Tokyo Olympic Games, which is just around the corner. And we have Brisbane pretty set in stone as the host city of the 2032 Olympic Games, because he has no rival. I'm just trying to understand the value of the Olympics from an anthropological perspective, because we kind of learn from the past real and this one, the Tokyo Olympic Games, that it does not necessarily turn a profit. Like the 2016 real one, it was pretty bogged down in a huge financial recession. And we know that postponing the Tokyo Games has caused Japanese finance to bleed so much. And I'm just wondering, like, what is the added value to such a spectacle then? Can we see it from from a different perspective other than the like you know the economic one look i i think anyone that tries to quantify the olympics in monetary terms is kidding themselves like yeah. every olympics even back to the sydney oh, sydney 2000 earlier atlanta you can keep going back right the olympics don't turn a profit let's be real but everyone always tries to find the monetary case i think that for myself the interesting thing is that I'd be really curious to go through and find when did it start to become a big deal. I don't have the data in front of me, of course. You'd have to do like some sort of literary historic analysis of the modern Olympics. But I'm pretty confident back in France, Pierre de Coubertin, who I gather was one of the main organisers of the modern Olympics, I'm pretty sure didn't try to justify it and be like, it's going to be great, guys. It's going to make a mint. And it was about, you know values and recreating the values of the ancient Greeks and togetherness and international community and all sorts of wonderful things, right? When did the financial case become really important? I would love to know that. The cliche answer would be the 80s, but... Yeah, like the 1984 one. Yeah. That's when Olympics started to marry commercialization, you know, big sponsorship. Um, TV broadcasting rights, that's where the money came from. Reagan. Really, I think that is actually a really telling and fascinating thing. Is like, why do we hold the Olympics? And I'd be curious, surely there's going to be some sort of historic PhD in there, looking at the various justifications for the Olympics over its 
100 plus years now. Oh, I'm happy now. to go on public record and say that I'm not particularly interested in the Olympics. Um, All right. Good. I'm glad you admitted to that because I want to ask, because I know you like the football. So why football and not Olympics? I think increasingly the Olympics is one spectacle amongst many and it increasingly is coming to resemble sort of a consumer choice. And as a good consumer, I have my preferences, mm-hmm. which are probably just due to personal history more than anything, just due to raised watching sports and made connections with and have memories with those which are meaningful and not with others. But it does raise the question, I think, if it is one spectacle amongst many, is the Olympics special or different in a way that, say, the football World Cup or the Euros or the Rugby World Cup or any other sort of major tournament of the um, sporting event, be that Wimbledon or anything else, is it different from those in any meaningful sense other than just the variety? I would like to think it is, but I'm a sucker. I don't get excited about... I don't know if I was excited for the Olympics as a kid because of the Sydney 2000 Olympics or if that's just coincidence. I certainly had a soft spot for the Olympics when I was younger. And certainly, I don't know, maybe because the World Cup, until Australia got into the World Cup, until then, like, Australia did not pay much attention to the World Cup. Mm. So, like, the idea of the World Cup as this super international thing, which in many ways it is, I want to be clear, but was not my experience of it as a kid. I only started to get into the World Cup when Australia got into it, and then I happened to be in South America for a couple of World Cups. And even though Ecuador was in it one year, they weren't in it another year, it's still just a thing. Like, everyone talks about it. So that shift is interesting, and I, I don't pay that much attention to the Olympics anymore, so I don't know if that's a generational age or just hasn't been... Australia doesn't do that well in the medal tally. But I do think that sense of internationalism is different across the different sports. Like, how many countries play rugby? Yeah, so the rugby ranks interesting because that kind of maps onto which countries were sort of sort of the colonial histories of certain places maps onto their sporting preferences i suppose that history is not as obvious in either football or the olympics because they're both incredibly international where they sort of feature by necessity representatives from every part of the world i think the ideals of the olympics are quite nice that internationalism coming together blah 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 certainly in ideals because the world cup isn't even about that world cup is just football 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 at least that's my impression I don't know. I started watching football World Cup in 1998 when I was really, really small. What? Okay. What got you into the World Cup in 98? Yeah, my parents were, you... were watching it, and I was just like, I don't know. It's just this. But like, what, did you have a team? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, we did you super love? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I do not. Brazil. Brazil. Yeah. All right. But then I switched to Germany. <gasps> and... <laughs> you switched. <laughs> Claire. Yep. Do you remember the 2002 World Cup? Because I'm pretty sure China was the People's Republic of China. Yeah, that was, that was the first time that mm. China entered World Cup. Yeah. And I don't think they've been in one since, unless I'm wrong. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Was that, I mean, this, you might be a bit young to remember this, but was that like a sort of intense moment of national pride? In school, I remember like our Chinese teacher allowing us to watch the Chinese team play in class. And we were all having a good time watching it. I don't quite recall anything related to Pride. Well, I suppose the obvious thing there then is that as nice and, you know, that sort of solitary feeling that comes with watching sports and football, I think, from my experience anyway, is the uh, the flip side to that, which is the very strict policing about groups, the sort of aggressive nationalism that comes from certain supporters, 
the the evoking of past histories of nations that you're playing, sort of using that as like a weapon to chant against them. And I suppose some of the, you know, the worst aspects of contemporary society as well that can sort of coexist. Yeah, look, I agree, particularly because of uh, soccer's more working class origins versus a lot of sports, say versus rugby, for instance. And the Olympics is across the board. A lot of them are very upper class sports, largely because who else could afford a rowboat? (laughs) And also, you know, back when it was amateurs and you weren't allowed to be paid. Like, who can afford to do that? You need wealth to do that. But I do agree that that's... It gives soccer an interesting edge to study. But, okay, so the, here's the question then. Why does sport, like, raise so much passion? I think Bourdieu had an essay on this where he basically said that spectator sports basically filled the demand for social groups as a way of expressing themselves and performing their own identity publicly. But I think something like skiing for example which is all about you know poise skill he would you know say that that's a representation of bourgeois values as much as say you know football or boxing are representations of working class that's all we have time for today i want to thank alex thank you very much claire thank you and joe thank you and myself your host simon today's episode was produced by all of us at the strange our executive producers are the wonderful Dan Nakato and Matthew Fong. Subscribe to the Vermeer Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other Vermeer places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash the Vermeer Strange, not the Strange Vermeers, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thevermeerstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thevermeerstrange.com. Tweet at TFS Tweets or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music is by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.